Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Chris Kajoika. He's the co-owner and founder of Miro Kaimuki in Honolulu, Hawaii. He also owns Papa Kurtz, which is a burger joint in Honolulu, and Waikoko, which is a restaurant inside the Weston Hotel over on Maui, different island there in the Hawaiian chains. Chris is a very famous chef in Honolulu. I mean, he worked for some of the best chefs in America that anybody has ever heard of. He kind of had a hit list of people he wanted to work for and just started checking off those boxes once he graduated culinary school. So we get into all that, you know, why he chose that career path and how he first got started cooking. Chris is kind of the next generation of great Hawaiian chefs. You know, the first generation is kind of Roy Yamaguchi, Alan Wong, those guys kind of late 90s, early 2000s. And Chris is kind of part of this next generation that's going to mentor the next generation after that, the third generation of, of great Honolulu chefs. So it's like Chris and like Sheldon Simeon, who's been on Top Chef and has an Eater series and stuff like that. He's in that generation. So we talk a lot about just what it means to be Hawaiian, be a Hawaiian chef, working in Hawaii, sourcing ingredients in Hawaii, how he founded Senia with Chef Anthony Rush and, and eventually... He had a bunch of other projects and Anthony Rush had a bunch of other projects too. So they kind of separated and and he went with Miro Kamuki and opened that with his really good friend, Morad Lalu, who runs a couple different restaurants in San Francisco. He's an amazing chef, self-taught, Michelin-starred chef, never worked for anybody, um, is from Morocco, has a self-titled restaurant, Morad, which I've had the pleasure of eating at, which was amazing. Also has a Aziz and uh, a couple other spots too as well that he's kind of partnered up with and done some stuff with Chris. And Anthony Rush is running uh, Senia and Bar Podmore, I think is the other restaurant that they just opened and, and doing their own thing there too. So it was kind of a natural break for both of them. So we kind of cover that too as well, but a lot of Chris's formative years and how he kind of became a chef and his culinary journey and where he sees himself kind of headed and what's next and all that stuff too. So it was just a fantastic episode. It was awesome to be able to talk to Chris. We had a fantastic experience at Miro. I can't recommend it enough. The menu is just phenomenal. They do a lot of special event dinners too as well. They had the team from Maison there a few months ago. So we had Chef Marcin Kroll on this podcast too as well. So if you didn't listen to that episode, go ahead and check back in the feed. Um, that's kind of, I think, like 53 or something like that numbered in the feed. But you can follow Chris on Instagram at Chef Chris Kajoika. And Kajoika is spelled K-A-J-I-O-K-A. -A. You can also follow the restaurants at Miro Kaimuki. And that's at M-I-R-O-K-A-I-M-U-K-I. Also at Papa Kurtz and at Waikoko.Maui on Instagram too as well. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Also follow us on Twitter at SpoonMob1. Facebook is at SpoonMob1 as well. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com for more information, all the guests that we've had on the podcast, different food photos too as well are up under each individual profile. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from We're on all the major platforms. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We put the podcast up there too as well in case YouTube is your preferred player. Those all come out one week in arrears. So everything gets released new on all the podcast apps. And then the following week it comes out on YouTube. But without further delay, here is my conversation with Chef Chris Kajoika, the executive chef and co-owner of Miro Kaimuki in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
thanks again uh, for agreeing to come on the podcast and do this. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, you got a few different restaurants. Uh, you're involved with a few different projects. I think you got more stuff that you're kind of working on too as well. So I want to get into all that. Miro Kaimuki, which we had the pleasure to eating at be almost about a year ago. It was May. Came out to Honolulu, ate at a bunch of places, just like a COVID trip to just kind of break it all up. Had a fantastic experience. Food was delicious. We missed out on the sourdough bread just because they were sold out. Escargot, like all that stuff was amazing. So kind of start at the beginning of your career. You're from Honolulu, kind of born and raised, but I know like you're fourth generation Japanese. How did you kind of first get started cooking? You know, I didn't grow up in a household where, you know, my parents are chefs or, you know, we ate. My parents are great cooks, but they're very simple cooks, you know, so... And I grew up eating meatloaf and very basic kind of Americana dishes. My parents also um, always took us out for like a nice dinner, you know, me and my brother. Ever since we were kids, you know, we went to restaurants where, you know, they did like a tableside souffle, you know, the Grand Marnier souffle, you know, where, where there's like, you know, tableside Caesar salad, which are things that, you know, I, I've always enjoyed. I've always remembered. So, you know, I've always, I've, I wanted to be a chef since I was like four years old, you know, so... Every Christmas I would ask for, you know, chef gadgets or, so, you know, I have pictures of me from a little kid, you know, with chef hats. And it's just something I've always wanted to do for some reason, you know, instead of like the cartoons, you know, I, I watch cooking shows, obviously growing up. So it's, it's something that I've always really wanted to do, always passionate about it. So I think I was 14 or 15 uh, when I was in high school, I started volunteering at restaurants, you know, for free. And I did it, um... You know, on, on my off time when I wasn't playing sports or after school, we'll just go into restaurants and volunteer. You know, that, that kind of solidified my, my love, kind of my wanting to go into this industry. Uh, you know, my parents were, you know, I think they doubt you when you say you wanted to, you know, when you're that age, right? So, you know, my dad basically told me, he said, well, you work for free then, you know, it proves to me that you want, this is what you want to do. And I, you know, I did that for all through pretty much high school. I was you know, serious enough to want to go to culinary school. You know, I, I applied to CIA. You know, Roy Yamaguchi, um, you know, is a, is a mentor of mine. And, you know, he was, I believe he's still on the board there, but, uh, you know, he's a big advocate for the CIA. And, uh, and everyone told me that that's the best place to go, you know. So, you know, I applied there, got in. And right after high school, that's, that's where I went, you know. And that, that kind of started it for me. Um, even though I already had some kitchen experience under some great places and great people, it wasn't like one of the first places you worked at, your uncle was the chef's dentist or something like that? Uh, yeah, so Jean-Marie Jocelyn was, uh, you know, he's, he still runs a restaurant in Kauai. He's a great, great chef. You know, pretty old school, old school French. Um, you know, I, w- I was probably 15 or 14 when I was in his kitchen. And, you know, I was just hooked, you know. And, uh, you know, I, to get into a kitchen when you're that at that age, you know, back then, you know, it wasn't glamorous to be a chef back then you know this is pretty much before the food network you know we're really caught on so like to ask somebody for a teenager to come into your kitchen for free it was kind of weird you know at that point uh now it's like so common right to stage and whatever so yeah i had to ask my uncle who you know it's like oh i'm his dentist so you know it's kind of how i got my first way in you know from then on it's just you know i would go to uh i volunteered at another great place called High Steakhouse, uh, which I still love today. I would go there as a kid, you know, my parents would take us. So I literally just asked the general manager, I was like, you know, 
we've been coming here since I was a kid. Can I hang out in the kitchen? You know, so, you know, to this day, the GM is still there. Obviously, I, I go there as a diner now. It's been something that, you know, I've never wavered from. Uh, I've always wanted to be a chef. Um, you know, I love the, the craft of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it just started from when I was young. And it, I, to this day, you know, I still love it. It's a love-hate now, right? Because once you become an owner, it's, uh, it's different than just being a creative chef, you know? So obviously, you know, Roy kind of tells you, hey, go to the CIA, the network that they have and everything, you know, it's probably the most famous culinary school we have. Was part of the allure to being able to go to New York where you're so far away from Hawaii, like you've never experienced kind of anything else. Like you probably up to that point, probably experienced like California and the Pacific coast, but like going to the opposite end of the country. You know, hundred percent, you know, it's like, um, I was always taught that from the young age that, you know, if, if once you're comfortable, you start getting lazy, you start getting complacent. And I, if I went to, you know, at that time, CIA uh, had a campus in Napa, but they didn't have the full program. You know, if I would have gone to Napa, you know, I, I would have been very comfortable, you know, cause I've been to California many times, you know, been in Napa, been in San Francisco, but you know, Hyde Park, New York, you know, it's not exactly New York City. You know, it's 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 two hours north. It's in a very small college town. The weather is is as brutal as it can get, you know. And I wanted to go to some place where I didn't know anybody. Um, nobody knew me. So I didn't have that, you know, that comfort system, you know, where I could fall back. So, you know, I literally for the first six months, I was so homesick. You know, I, I got there. I got to Hyde Park uh, October 1st, which was like weeks after 9-11. Uh, it was a crazy, crazy time. You know, my, my mom kind of begged me not to go, you know, because just the uncertainty of what was happening in the world. But, you know, I was just saying, no, I got I to gotta go. I got to go. So I've always been very independent, but I wanted to prove to, to people this wasn't a mistake. I wanted to prove to people that, you know, I can handle myself you know, being basically for the farthest state away, you know, you know, you always have kind of a chip on your shoulder, but when you're young, you know, you're young and dumb, but I think I was dumb enough to fool myself into thinking that I can handle this, you know, and, and I did, and I got, you know, you, you meet friends and you meet a, a good support system there. It was probably one of the best times of my life just because, you know, you have access to New York city. The great thing is, is that Hyde Park Poughkeepsie is like the last stop on the train. So you could go into the city and come back in the last train, fall asleep, and then you know the the train the train driver would wake you up, you know, and it was it was perfect, you know. So so many nights, you know, coming back on the on the train and and falling asleep, it's just it's just good memories, you know. And um, I think it it was also good not going to school in New York City because I probably would have dropped out and just started working in restaurants, you know. In Poughkeepsie, you know, there's well, we I mean. There's not much, you know, there's, we used to go to Walmart, we used to go to Cracker Barrel, a lot of house parties, you know, there's not that much, it's a college town, you know, so uh, it, was, it was fun though. It was, it was great times. I ask this to every chef that comes on the podcast, if someone in your kitchen today, you know, somebody that's working there for free or just started working there, you know, staging or whatever, it's like, hey, I'm super serious about being a chef, want to open a restaurant of my own one day. Should I go to culinary school? What would you tell them? That's a tough one. You know, um, I think, you know, if someone is very serious, you know, I got a great base at culinary school, right? I got a great, just like waking up every day when it's class on time, that treat, that's discipline, right? Uh, having to make sure your uniform is clean, 
um, you know, there, there's certain things that I feel give you a really good foundation. Could you learn those things in, in working at a great restaurant? Absolutely, you could as well. I was very fortunate. My parents paid my college. Uh, but a lot of my classmates, you know, have huge debt, right, after corner school. So it, it really depends how, what your situation is, I think. You know, if you are able to, yes, I do think you should go. You know, just for a base, you know. Uh, I ended up doing the bachelor's there because that was kind of a, a trade-off for my parents, you know. Go to culinary school, okay, but you got to get your bachelor's, you know. So... I did that, uh, but you know, it, I went to a really good high school and probably graduated close to the bottom of my class. But you know, I wasn't book smart, but I have life experiences. And I think me being there, I grew up a lot. You know, I matured a lot. I saw a lot. Uh, I experienced a lot, much more than a lot of kids at 18 going away from home, going that far away from home. You know, so I think that's a loaded question. You know, I, I would say, you know, my I have a son, eight-year-old son, and. I, I wouldn't necessarily tell him to go into culinary school. I would tell him just work. Work in the best restaurant. You know, bust your ass. You know, nowadays, the road that people take, they want it to happen much faster now. Uh, before, you know, I opened, I was executive chef for the first time when I was about 28, and I felt like I wasn't ready. You know, and that's after working for, you know, a good 10 years in great places. You know, and I still felt like I wasn't ready. I can't even imagine, you know, working for... Two, two to five years and being ready, you know, right now, like <clears throat> I still make mistakes as a business owner, you know, but you know, I, I, I would say, you know, whatever circumstance you're in, I think culinary school is a good thing. But if, if, you know, you're really stretched financially, then just start working. After culinary school, you made a list, I think of five chefs you wanted to work for who was on that list. I know of a few, but I don't know the full five. Well, during CIA and our bachelors, we have this big thing. It's a wine trip, basically. It's uh, We go to San Francisco. We go to Napa. Actually, during my externship, I did it at, back at Roy's. Uh, we had done a dinner with Ron Siegel, uh, who was at Masa's at that point. You know, iconic San Francisco restaurant. I was his helper during that dinner. I was just completely blown away. And then, you, you know, you, you see the original Iron Chef. He was like the original guy to do it, to beat um, Sakai. So you see that and you're like, okay, this is, and then during that trip, I ate at Masa's. And at that point, that was by far the best meal of my life. So Ron was someone who I was like, I have to work for Ron. Um, you know, Ron comes from Thomas Keller. Thomas was on the list. You know, Pierre Gagné was on the list, which I actually got to spend the week with him in Berlin. Most of my list was, was French people, uh, just because that was my interest. Ron Siegel, um, you know, I actually just, I texted with him a few days ago. But, you know, he, I would say, you know, to this day, he, you know, has more influence on me than any other chef. When I worked with him, it was at the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton. At that point, he was doing a lot of Japanese stuff, right? And this was back in 2005. Because he eventually worked for Michael Mina, I think, at one point, right? After the Ritz, he went to, back to Michael Mina, where he was at Aqua with, with Michael. But, you know, Ron was doing Japanese, this Japanese, like, dashi, like, everything that's in vogue now, right? He was doing in 2005. You know, we were making our own dashi with, like, the best bonito and shaving it to order. And, making, you know, we, we were doing all this. We were killing spot prawns. We had a spot prawn tank in the, in the walk-in. We were doing killing spot prawns to order for sashimi. You know, we were doing these things where now it would still be relevant, you know? And this was 2005, right? So, you know, his food is... If the ingredient is not great, then you can't make good food, right? So he was the, 
you know, he went to the farmer's market himself two to three times a week, you know, so I still look to our time there and I'm like, okay, well, that's how I want to cook. You know, Ron is not, that is like one of the guys, you know, because he's a guy who he cooked in the line with us. He still cooks in the line today. He's probably extremely uncomfortable in front of the camera, just like I am, but he would rather just be, you know, working and, and slaving away on the line. And those are the kind of people that, you know, cooks respect, right? He's like, he's one of the goats to me in San Francisco. So Ron, you know, really, I worked with him two separate times. And Ron was the reason why I worked at Per Se. When I left, when I was, I was about, I was at the dining room for maybe about two and a half to close to three years. And, you know, I basically told him, I was like, chef, I want to go to New York City. Because, you know, Ron had worked at Danielle. And I told him, you know, I want to get challenged. I want to, I've always wanted to do New York City. And he said, well, why don't you go to Per Se? Because I was looking at Le Bernardin because um, I just love fish. And, you know, at that point, I think uh, Jonathan Benno was an intern at the French Laundry when Ron was there. So Ron knows Jonathan very well, JB, and literally just picked up the phone in the, in the kitchen and called Jonathan. It was like, I have somebody for you. And JB said, you know, he's got to be here next month, you know? So literally that's how, that's what happened. You know, I've never sent in a resume. Uh, I just got there and, and, um, you know, that, that was it, you know? So I owe a lot to, I owe a lot to Ron, you know, to this day. With working at Per Se, uh, we've had a couple people on who have spent time there. It's been described as, you know, it's militaristic, disciplined, career boosting, demanding, rewarding. What was your experience there like? It was absolutely the hardest kitchen I've ever been in. You know, and it, a lot of it is the expectation that you set for yourself but also the expectation of the people you're working with. You know, I stepped in there and I will tell you, you know, I've, I worked with, at that time, uh, I will say like that kitchen was just loaded. It was so loaded. Like everybody I worked with today either has a few Michelin stars, they probably want some James Beards. They're on, you know, the, like that kitchen was just loaded. I've seen people come in who were sous chefs of other two, three stars and just get broken. You know, I, I was part of the, you know, you come in and you think you're a good cook and then they just break you down. They break you down because there's a new language, right? There's a new way. Everything's different, right? And, you know, I think, you know, the best thing is like, you know, when you're in the dressing, when you're in the locker room, you know, there's a set time where you can come in. You can't come in any earlier, right? And every day is a new day. You start from scratch. So you can just see every, all the cooks in the locker room just looking at the clock, you know, with anxiety, because you're just like, shit, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to set up on time today, you know? So it was like that every day. When you're going through it, you're just like, I don't know how, I'm, how I can do this. But once you, fit, once you get comfortable, you feel invincible after. You feel like I can do anything, you know? And um, I remember uh, David Breeden, uh, who, was a fellow, who was a fellow cook back then. Now he's the CDC of the French Laundry. Um, you know, David said, you know, we police ourselves. That, that, that always stuck with me, you know, he, he, which makes so much sense. You know, we call each other out as cooks, right? That's why the standard was so high is because the cooks cared so much. You didn't want to be the one to fuck anything up because, you know, you're letting down your team, right? So it was almost more of a, a mental pressure uh, versus the physical pressure, you know? But, you know, that kitchen, you know, it's just, uh, obviously I'm, I'm friends with so many people who came from there. A lot of them are, are amazing chefs already. 
who I still look up to. But, you know, that was a, it was a perfect experience for me um, because yeah, there, there's no better place to learn how to cook, you know, how to really refine and get to the next level. But I, I don't do that sort of food now. You know, you, you, you take all the lessons from there and you take, you know, the care. Yeah, you just take, just take how you were, how you felt when you were there, you know? And, uh, you know, I still have some anxiety when I walk into the Time Warner building, you know, I'm just like, oh man, you know, I, it's a irreplaceable experience that I had. And, you know, when I was there, I was, I think I was 24, 24, 25. So I was young. You know, my, my station partner was, was Corey Chow, who went on to be the CDC of per se for a while. Great, amazing cook. So it, it's fun, you know, and, uh, it's just, it was a, it's an incredible alumni of people. Did you ever think about transferring over to the French Laundry after you'd been at Per Se for a few? Because you wind up back in the Bay Area anyways. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I have one regret in my career. Uh, you know, I, there was a point where, you know, I was talking to David Breeden because we had lost our butcher. And he was asking me, he's like, would you want to be a butcher? I was, and I was thinking about it. You feel so mentally just tired, drained from that experience, right? So I just needed to step away for a bit. And I think my one regret is I've always wanted to work at Robuchon. I wanted to work for Suga, who's at, who's at Robuchon at the time, uh, or go, go work at in Paris. Because Robuchon, to me, he's the, he's the best. That's, that's who I consider just the best. And I regret leaving New York at that time because I really wanted to work at Robuchon. Robuchon or Le Bernadette? You leave, you wind up going... Back out west, right? After per se? Yes. Uh, I actually went back to Hawaii for about six to seven months. And then I, I made my way back out to uh, San Francisco. I kind of applied at, I think I applied at Michael Mina. Uh, at that point, uh, Dominique was opening Atelier Crenn. You know, I, I, Kwa, you know, I kind of set my sight on working. Uh, Mine Racer was a huge one for me. That was one of the dream, dream spots. I was able to get pretty much every job uh, that I wanted. The one uh, wild card was I applied to Aziza from Murad. And it was because at that point, I think they had had their mission star for maybe two years, but it just looked so different, you know? And I was so used to Japanese. I was so used to French. I, I didn't know how to use spices and building flavors, you know, because there's not a lot of spices in French cuisine or Japanese, right? So, you know, I... I I met with him. Um, it was crazy. It was a it was a Tuesday, which Aziza was closed, uh, which I didn't know, uh, and I think he he forgot about the interview for sure. And it was you know Aziza is in the Richmond. It's it's there's not much out there, you know. And it was a rainy day, and it was pouring. And I was I called, and I was like, oh my god, this fucking guy forgot about the interview, <laughs> you know. And he he answered, and he was like. Oh, yeah, uh, I'll be right there. I think he was in Napa. So literally, I probably waited like 35, 40 minutes, and I was already irritated. And, you know, he finally got there, and we, we just talked. And, you know, Aziza, at that point, it wasn't the prettiest restaurant. It wasn't going to be Atelier Crenn. It wasn't like Mina. It wasn't like Manresa. But we, me and Murad started talking, and there's just something about that experience. You know, we just hit it off. We didn't really talk about food. We just talked about, you know, life. That meeting ended up being, we were talking for about two to three hours. And I told him, I was like, listen, like, you know, I, I, I never thought I would want to work here. Uh, I just did it out of just because, 
you know, I think I want to take the job, you know. Aziza at that point, it was overachieving. The restaurant in the Richmond, it wasn't a beautiful kitchen. I saw all those things as positives. I saw those things as one day I'm going to have my own restaurant. It's probably not going to look like per se, right? It's probably going to look more like Aziza. They're killing it. They're killing it. So I, I was smart to make that decision to where, you know, I, I saw this as like, okay, this could be a test run for as a business owner. What can we achieve in a not great kitchen, right? And to me, that's way harder than getting one star at per se, right? Everything is there. Your everything is just perfect laid out, right? You know, I didn't spend a ton of time at Aziza. I was there a year. That friendship, you know, obviously parlaying into he's my partner now. You know, is that ten years later, maybe eight years later? You know, so we have a long, long history. You know, and so after um, Aziza, uh, Ron Siegel called, and they were rebranding um, the Ritz Carlton, the dining room. And he wanted me to come back for that opening, which I did. When your father calls, you go, right? And what? So there was no hesitation. So, you know, that it was that about two, three-year period where I was with Ron, with Ron again. And then I just worked with, uh, worked at Murad. Uh, and I felt at that time that I was kind of, kind of figuring out a style for myself, figuring out what I want to do if I open a restaurant. I was very happy. After, after working with Ron, I was dead set on working on Manresa. I was, that was like what David Kinch was doing was exactly what I wanted to do, you know? And then you see uh, Jeremy Fox, you know, you see James Charabud, you see just like the amount of talent that was coming out of that kitchen. You're just like, okay, that's the place, you know? What happened was I, I remember it was, uh, I was eating lunch and I got a call from someone in Hawaii, a friend. He said, there's this really rich guy who's doing this crazy project in, in Almohana Mall that, you know, he wants to talk to you about it. And I was like, well, I'm not ready to come home. And then what, what happened that my wife at the time, you know, she had just gotten an offer to go back home. Really great job. You know, for the, for the whole time, uh, she was just following me, right? She was sacrificing for me. So I was just like, well, I'll do this, you know, for you this time. So I called my friend back and I said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll take the visit. I want to meet. I want to see what it's about. And that's when the vintage game came to be. I went in for a weekend. I saw the site. I saw what he wanted to do. And I was like, holy shit. You know, this is I, like, is this too good to be true? You know, to this day, there's probably nothing that was ever like it, you know, and it was a perfect, perfect opportunity for me. One, I, I've met all my investors there. To this day, all my investors in my restaurants, I met there. My CDC at Miro now, Trevor, he was my he was my sous chef there back in the day. It was a great, Vintage Cave was a great, great time. I was burnt out to the max, but, you know, I met so many great people, kind of where I started doing collaborations. And I thought the food we were doing there was, I was so proud of it. Like you said, there's never been anything really like that restaurant that existed before or probably after you know, in Hawaii, it, I think it was also billed as like for at least a little while, like one of the most expensive restaurants, like in the world, maybe for a period of time. Was it weird at all? Like cooking for guests who you knew mostly weren't like locals, like weren't people from Hawaii. Like you're always cooking for wealthy, like out of towners on vacation. That was one of the things that, that really weighed on me was, you know, we were charging $295. And that was the price that was set by the owner. 
I, I didn't think I was good enough to cook a, a meal for that price, right? That warranted that price. But I had to do what I had to do, you know? Um, so I, I didn't skimp on what I was ordering. You know, we, we were able to build up a good local following. And that's also where I, you know, the owner was Japanese. That's where I got my connection into Japan, which is something that, that, that means the world to me now. You know, I met so many great chefs, Japanese chefs. I traveled to Japan a lot during that time. You know, that's really a lot of our following in, in, in the restaurants has been Japanese, you know, because obviously it's a, Japanese diners are, are, are honestly, they're the best, right? They never have allergies. They eat exactly what you, they want, you want to serve them, right? They don't complain. They appreciate quality. They don't care how much it costs. Like that's a perfect guest, right? No allergies. Don't complain. Pay what, pay what it should be, what should cost. First time I went to Japan, I was just like, you know, I, I still remember how floored I was and how good everything is, you know? And it's still like, to me, the place where every chef goes for inspiration, no matter what. Even if you're not cooking Japanese food, you see the dedication that these people have. It's inspiring. But, you know, getting back to the question, it was tough. And, you know, our friends couldn't come. My family couldn't come. I think every chef goes through the process of, okay, I, will, I cook at the highest level. Now I want to cook for everybody. I think everyone, every, most people go through that where they want something more approachable. Yeah, but Vintage Cave was, was a hell of a time. And I just, I still look at the pictures, you know, the food that we did and, you know, it was, it was hard, you know, and I, and I was very demanding. A 20-year-old, 28, 29-year-old kid trying to prove himself with a huge chip on his shoulder. I love the people I worked with there. You know, I, I see a lot of them still. I think of that time really, really fondly, you know, the people I met and the, the food that we cooked, you know, it was, it was, I poured myself into that place. 2014, I think, I think you're, you know, like you said, 2029, you get named a semifinalist for James Beard Award for the very first time in your career. I think it was the rising star chef of the year, but like you kind of start to your career and your name kind of starts to blow up. I mean, how did you find out about the James Beard Award? I was sleeping, honestly. I think it was a, was it a Monday? I'm not sure what day it came out, but uh, it was the day off. Uh, you know, I was sleeping and I just got a bunch of text messages from friends in the mainland, from my buddies. And I, I was floored because it wasn't even on our radar. You know, when you're, when you're young and dumb, all you want is awards, right? That's what you're seeking. And, you know, that one meant a lot because I, I, was, working, I, I was working my ass off. It felt some validation because I feel a lot of times Hawaii is neglected uh, just because a lot of these writers don't have the budget to come out here, you know, so far. We're not in a major food city. Uh, we're not in a major press town. But, you know, that, that recognition was for really, you know, we were, my team was only four, five people. I was cutting all the fish. I was cutting all the meat every day. You know, it was everybody had to pull a lot of weight. Right. And that's how I run all my kitchens. I don't have a brigade of people. I don't have commies. Right. We were pushing, you know, it was good validation of the work that we put in, you know. And, you know, when we had visiting chefs, I felt good because they were impressed at what we were doing as well, you know. So, and these are, these are all local kids who worked for me, who never worked in a restaurant like that, never worked at a level like that. Much like Miro, they rose their game, you know. So that was a big thing. That was probably one of my proudest moments. Then you leave the restaurant. You decide to kind of walk away. Were you 
was it like burnt out? I mean, I think your son was born around that time too. My son was born completely just like my mind was just shot, you know, just burnt out. Um, I left at the two year mark. You know, I just, I just couldn't, I was so stressed every day, working a ton. And, you know, I just, when you, when you have a newborn, you know, and, and my son was, was colicky. I would come home to see my wife crying, you know, and my son was sleeping, but he had just been crying two hours straight before that. Right. And me just being at work, you know, you, you kind of feel like a piece of shit. You know, I gotta, I gotta figure something out. I felt stagnant a bit. You know, I, I just needed to get away, um, spend some time with my son. And I, I needed to just take a trip somewhere and just, just relax. Attica in Melbourne. I just loved what Ben Shuri was doing. And I sent an email and I got in and I even got the housing. And then um, something happened where, uh, you know, I couldn't go for, I was going to be there about two months. So I ended up going to Rusty Canyon to hang out with Jeremy Fox. Uh, who's a great friend of Murad and you know Jeremy's one of the most creative great technical chefs you know ever right so yeah I think his cookbook on vegetable cuisine is like the cookbook on vegetable cuisine like I, I don't think I've tasted food so delicious right he just knows how to bring out flavor you know it's kind of a, a one-year period of you know figuring out what I wanted to do I think uh, during that time it's crazy um, you know Murad uh, was planning to open his restaurant, Murad. You know, I he he asked me. He's like, "Come up, come up and see the restaurant. You know, let's 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 cook a little. Let's taste taste through some food." And this was, I think, in December. And uh, you know, we were staying. I stayed at his house, and we we're just talking. And, you know, he was just like, "I need you to be the chef's cuisine." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know, because uh, I was planning to open my own restaurant uh, in Honolulu. I was like, no, Kate is, you know, I think he was like two at that point. And he's like, I need you. I need you here. And, I, and, and, you know, my wife at that point was very close to Murad as well, you know. And I told, you know, I looked at the scale of the restaurant and I just saw, you know, how much they put into it. And I told her, I was like, I think I need to do this because if not, I think he's, I think he's going to get, I think he's going to be fucked. It is a, a really beautiful space because we ate there. Uh, a couple years ago, and it's a lot bigger than you think inside. Once you actually get in there, too, monster. You know, it's I think seven thousand square feet. You know, doing beautiful food for two hundred fifty, three hundred covers. That's crazy, right? So there was a point where I told him, "Okay, I'll I'll, I'll help you open." Uh, so literally, we were on at his house in Sausalito, and we wrote the menu on his deck. You know, we we cooked through it, and I, I won't say he owes me, but I would say he owes me, but you know, he's been great. He's been great for me. Uh, I ended up bringing about four or five cooks from Hawaii to open just because I needed, I needed that comfort, you know, of having guys I know, guys that I could rely on. So literally four, four, five guys came up and stayed for the first year uh, through the opening. Uh, one of them is Jeff Hayashi, uh, who's now the Boku's door candidate for America. Um, you know, Jeff, Jeff was my cook at Vintage Grave. Then he came on to Murad and stayed there for four years after. That was a crazy time. I think we got a mission fire within the first four months there. Uh, but that was a beast of an opening. It was not, there was nothing fun about it. Uh, you know, it was, we were there all day, all night. To, to have a mission star, I mean, you eat there, you saw how they plate the food. 
like for, to do that for 300 covers that's like it's crazy i think even crazier is just like his story of just he's self-taught like he's never worked for any other chef like he's always been the guy in charge and like you know he's doing moroccan cuisine and san francisco like it's such a wild story he is the most unbelievable palate i've ever seen he's he's that guy who just you hate because like you said he's self-taught right how can a guy who self-taught be one of the best chefs in america right how's that possible right and you know he's cooking from a, a reference point right of food he grew up with but fuckers and he's natural you know he's he makes beautiful food and you know i had to work it a long time to be able to do that you know uh, but our relationship we don't really talk about food anymore we talk about life you know he is a he has a new son so he understands now i think the sacrifice i made when my son was two to be away from him for the first nine months you know it was uh i would go back to hawaii i think once a month on the days off and i would come straight back for service it was crazy so you wind up eventually deciding to open your own restaurant did you get to a point where you knew it was time to do your own thing, even while you're at Vintage Cave? Because some chefs, they just get tired of working for somebody else. They want to run their own thing, call all their own shots instead of just, you know, ordering and making the menu. Or did you like ever have a realization or? That was that was always the goal. You know, that's I think that was always the goal. That's, that's why we, well, that's why I busted my ass for so long, you know? And it's like having a kid, you never feel like you're ready. But you just have to take the leap, right? If it if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, then you gotta dust yourself off and figure something else out, you know. And uh, so I opened Senia. You know, it was long delayed, obviously, right? Like every restaurant, right? You think you think there's one date, yet you add on nine months to that, and then you add on another four months to that, right? So you know, Senia was a there was just so much so much hype because one, I think you know my partner Anthony. Uh, you know, had an incredible resume as well. It worked into our favor about the delay just because it was there's so much more anticipation, right? Because there wasn't a really big opening in Hawaii for for years, really, you know? And um, I had already, I think, done well at Vintage Cave. Uh, my name was already out there. I had a, a following of people already who were ready to eat my food at a, a lot uh, lower price point, right? So it was attractive, I think. So yeah, just the amount of, of traction from day one was was incredible. Got a lot of press, you know, got nominations again, you know, and, and it was great. It was a it was a great time. You know, I, during that time, you know, I you know, we, we weren't necessarily on the best of terms, you know, because I was very I feel like he didn't appreciate what I did um during that time, you know, and he he knows that. Um uh, but you know, you know there comes a point where, you know, a brother is a brother, right? You know, we, we've had many of talks where, you know, in the end, who do you want to spend your time with, right? At the restaurant, your personal life. And, you know, I, I love the guy. You know, during that time at Senia, we started talking and figure like, okay, well, what do we want to do? You know, we've always wanted to do a restaurant together, always. And, you know, our visions align. And not only that, it's just he's someone who, no, no matter how much we irritate each other sometimes it's it's family you know it's 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 a lot thicker than blood you know um you know we started thinking okay what can we do together you know and um during the time at senia i had been approached by 
a real estate friend, a mutual friend. And he had told me, he said, it's called Cafe Miro, which is Miro, Miro Now. I, I is in Kamiki in a neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, and my family still lives in. Um, it was a it was a Japanese French restaurant for 22 years. And he said he wants to retire. He wants to move that back to Japan and he wants you to look at it. He wants you to take over. I looked at the space and, you know, it was much different than it looks now, but it had such a good feeling, you know, had good bones, you know. What's better? A Japanese chef cooking French food in a neighborhood that I grew up in, right? That's that's the dream. That's exactly what I want to do, you know? So I, I took on Merrill and uh, decided to concentrate on this. Um, and we kept the name, Merrill Kamiki, just as a homage to Chef Kobayashi. You know, this is a restaurant that I feel that I tell people I'm going to die in this restaurant because I feel like this is this is my legacy restaurant. You know, this is... Everything that I want, you know, it's not the prettiest kitchen. It's not the fanciest dining room, but I'm very, very happy when I come here. You know, I'm very, very happy with with what we do here. I'm very, very happy with the people I work with. So it's really come to the point where certain things are not important to you anymore, right? Um, obviously, family is everything, but also too, like, putting in perspective, you know, we have so many regular diners here. And we've only really been open a year and a half. We have so many, right? People have been here 50, 60 times already in a year and a half, you know, with a prefix menu that changes monthly. These are people coming almost every other week, you know? And that is a true test of success. We're financially profitable. We have a huge list of regular guests, you know? Um, my staff has grown tremendously, you know? And they're happy, you know? So it's like... Uh, you know, I've been nominated a few times for four or five times for James Beard. But to me, you know, there's a lot of people who, who can have amazing restaurants that don't make money, that are not sustainable, you know, that are don't have a huge regular, you know, guest book. You know, we're, we're we've been lucky. We've been busy every night we've been open since we opened, you know, and that's rare. You know, there's it, it's like one of these. To me, this is like Maya Ziza, right? It's not perfect. You know, there's, it's an old building, but there's magic in here to me. You know, I feel it. So, you know, this is exactly what I want. You know, this is where I want to spend the rest of my career for sure. But yeah, there's, there's, to me, me and Murad, we just laugh is because, you know, he is an Aziza and I have an Aziza here. It's like the same, like kind of broken, but it works. To wrap up on kind of Senia, which was your first restaurant, you were there for a number of years. I mean, like you said, delayed like maybe two years of opening, but not just like anticipated across Hawaii, but like I think it was one of the most anticipated restaurants across the U.S. The New York Times came and did a write-up before you guys even opened. You were partnered with Anthony, who's the owner now. He was your boss at Per se, sous chef, and then his wife. Well, I think she worked at Per se too as well, and that was kind of like how they met. But you guys kind of building out the restaurant. I mean, it's kinda, it's an awesome restaurant. It's weird, you know. Your kitchen is the same size as your dining room. You guys did booths instead of just tabletops. You had a tasting menu and a la carte menu. I think the a la carte menu was kind of more you, and and the tasting menu was more what Anthony was kind of focused on. Oh, before you guys decide to just go your separate ways. I mean. 
you're dual nominated for a James Beard award, which is like the first time anybody's ever been like dual nominated, like two chefs for the same restaurant and stuff, but they had other projects in the works. You had other projects in the works. You guys kind of mutually agree. Like, yeah, I'm more focused on that. They're more focused on that. But from your time at, at Senia with your first restaurant to Miro, was there anything that you learned that you applied to Miro knowing like that you've already been through it before? You know, I wouldn't say there's anything that, you know, nothing new that I learned. You know, I think one thing to look back on is that, you know, we had a good mix of destination people, diners and locals, right? One thing is that if you don't have the locals, you're not going to be sustainable, right? And I think that's in every city, right? Unless you're like, you know, the you know, Noma or which is just so influential where, you know, you have people flying in every day. We were set to open Miro in March of 2020. I was a week and a half away from opening the doors. To first two months were fully booked, and I had a my kitchen staff was on on payroll, and the world got shut down. That was the craziest mindfuck I've ever experienced. I'll never go through something more difficult than that, having to figure shit out with you know not a ton of operating capital in the bank, and I was banking on just being busy from the beginning, which. You know, we were going to be, you know, to try to figure out how to navigate all that. I, I think I aged about 10 years, you know, during, during that. I think every, obviously everybody did, you know, I'm not saying it was just me, but for the people who were opening restaurants in March of 2020, I salute you. Oh my God. I, I still am so fortunate at the staff, you know, and I'm so fortunate that uh, our guests keep supporting us, you know, because uh, holy shit. It's just, I, I never want to go through that again. You know, it's just so much, never know, you know, you just, I, I like to pay my investors back. And we did that at Senia so quickly, you know, if not, I, I can't sleep at night, you know, because I, I, these people believe in us, you know? So, you know, that, that was very hard for me, you know, that was very, very hard for me, but you know, we're, we're in a very good place now. I have great landlords here. So there's nothing new I learned. It's just, well, I guess, if you don't have the local for a long time, we didn't have tourism here, right? So our restaurant was, you have to get filled with locals, you know? So and this is a very local neighborhood. So, you know, we don't even have the Japanese clientele back yet. And we're already at capacity. So it's going to be rocking even more, you know, when, when they come back. But yeah, it's just, it's been a crazy two for everybody, two years, you know? You guys started selling like bento boxes, like during the three months that you guys were, you know, forced to be closed before you kind of reopen. Cause you guys eventually opened for like dine in, in June or something, right? Late June. Yeah. You know, I didn't want the first thing that people saw from the restaurant to be a deconstructed version of a fancy dish. Right. Cause you can't, we all know, like you can't plate a five course prefix menu to go. It just doesn't work. So you just do something that's completely opposite. Right pretty crazy you know when, and when people don't think of my name and think $12 bento right but you know that's I think that's that was a juxtaposition you know, that's what really you know that's what I realized it's like shit man you this is a food that really resonates with everybody right it's not it's not a fancy dish it's not a foie gras torchon or whatever it's 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 a musubi with five different types of meat a couple of vegetables and for 12 bucks right so I think that allowed us to have a lot more eyes on us, eyes that, you know, would never have been looking at Miro, you know? Um, I can't say that those people come in. I, I really don't know. 
but you know it, it, it spawned Papa Kurtz, obviously, and just me wanting to be approachable. When you came in, you said a year ago? May 2021. How much was the menu? Was it 75? I don't remember. We did like every supplemental thing that you guys offered. But if you don't do an add-on, right? You get five courses. We opened with a $65 menu, five courses for $65. I don't know where you can find that now. You can get a steak for $68, you know? But you're not getting a side with it, right? So the original concept of Miro, he had a prefix menu. And it was, I think, four, four to five courses. You build your own for $65. So I wanted to stay true to what he was doing. Um, our lease allows us to, you know, have some room on, on, on the food costs, be a little higher. So, you know, I think right now our menu is at 82. But, you know, we're using Washugu Flanks, we're using, you know, Aura King. I can't not buy nice stuff, you know? And I think that's at, you know, Vintage Cave, I just bought whatever I wanted to. And, you know, we still buy super nice caviar. We buy really nice stuff, you know? And I don't ever want to creep into the place where we become not approachable, you know? I don't want to be, I don't want to be the celebration restaurant. I want to be the restaurant where the bar is packed with people who come every week. And so far, that's what it's been. You know, it's been people who, like, I know these people now, you know. Um, I've seen them almost every week for for past two years, you know. So, you know, I'll eat a little bit. I'd rather the profit be a little bit lower, but we not be unattainable. Like, people, when they come from San Francisco and New York, they're shocked that they can get five these five courses for $75. Shocked, you know. And to me, that's a great thing because, you know, it's like, we're still doing the same techniques. We're still cooking great ingredients, but we don't need to charge 150 bucks or $125, you know? That means a lot to me. With the menu, how hard is it not to just put like 90% of it to be seafood? Because you're in Hawaii, you have all this great seafood. Is that a challenge in itself to like, yeah, we could do just all seafood if we wanted to, but like, we really shouldn't? 100%. The, the most famous dishes that people think of me as are vegetable dishes. It's cabbage, right? At Vintage Cave, I had a cabbage dish that was one of the top dishes for food and wine that year. You know, when we opened Senia, uh, we had the same cabbage, but a different preparation that, you know, really became the signature dish, you know? And that dish, people begged me for it at Miro, you know? And we did it, we did it for one month, you know? But it's like... Uh, I saw it every day for four years. I don't want to see it anymore. There's a caviar dish that I did the second or third service at Vintage Cave. It's 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 a basically a piece of smoked brioche with caviar, uh, aged maple, creme fraiche, and some grated Marcona almond. And that is a dish that will it just follows me. You know, people ask for it constantly. And you know, when we opened Miro, I, we did not offer it, but everyone asked for it. You get to the point where it's like all you want to do is make people happy, right? That's what it's about. Now we offer it and we sell, like my purveyor is, is just shocked at how much caviar we sell. It's shocking because the price of the caviar brioche is almost the price of our menu, you know, for two bites, right? But it's just so expensive ingredient, right? But it's just something that, you know, every night we're shocked at how much, like people still want that dish. People still ask for that dish. Even when we do collaborations, people are still asking for the dish, even though it's not even on the menu. Seafood, 100%. You know, we always have trouble 
coming with the menu for the meat course. We always have trouble. Seafood and vegetable courses comes easy to us, you know? I told my manager that at some point, you know, I would love to morph this into a seafood and vegetable only. It's just people expect, you know, the red meat at the end. And I don't eat a lot of red meat, you know? Uh, I always order fish when I go out or I go get sushi. So I can say that at some point, I would love to go to that direction. I would love to. You mentioned collaborations. I mean, you guys have done a decent amount since you've been open. Uh, you did one with the Maison team. Uh, their restaurants in Paris currently closed. They're bouncing around. I got the chance to eat some of their cuisine in, in San Francisco, but Lamar in Miami, Contra uh, in, from New York, Comey. What's been kind of the driving force, the driving idea behind doing all those events? You know, this it started at the cave. You know, we had, I, I got to just pick all these people who I admired, right? It didn't matter. I just said, come, come cook with us, cook whatever you want. Those are some of my closest friends now, right? Uh, James came, Murad came, um, Viet Pham, you know, there so many amazing people. Jeremiah Langhorn, Belinda, uh, Ron Mendoza. We had such a stacked lineup, you know? For me, you know, selfishly, I saw what they could, what they could do firsthand, right? But also the staff was just blown away, you know? And these are kids who have never eaten at these people's restaurants, but are working with these people firsthand. Now these people are friendly with these chefs, right? How beneficial is that, right? So that's something, as soon as we opened Mira, I was like, we've got to do collabs. I don't care how much it costs to be, I mean, we flew in, we flew in Sota and Marcin from Paris. Think about how expensive it is to fly two people out from Paris to stay for a week, right? I don't really care. It's it's something, when am I going to work with Sota again, right? When is my staff going to be able to work with an amazing chef from Paris? You know, when is my staff going to be able to call James Shibut a friend? Two-star, one of the best chefs in the country, right? When I mean, we just had Diego yesterday and the day before. Diego's amazing, you know? Got to know his family, tangible than my cooks, my front house to figure out, to see how these people operate, how they think of their restaurant. My cooks are getting a first-hand education. They don't have to go anywhere. They can stay here, just go to work. So all they do is come to work, and they get to work. They get to see how ceviche is made. They get to try a, a, a Peruvian potato. It's just like, that's cool. As a cook, I, I worked with Ron Stiegel through a collaboration with Roy. So I, I saw the value in that, and it's something that we, we do every month. And it's very difficult because it's a lot of work, but it's worth it to me. When we were there, you had escargo on the menu. Obviously, you guys rotate your menu, like you said, like every month or so. How often with the, the snail like tongs, how often was snail shells like flying across the tables? Oh my God. You know, I, I don't think people in Hawaii have ever seen those, right? Normally, people don't serve it in the shell. You know, that's, that's me eating at um, Tuamek, uh, Ludo. Great restaurant. I just, it's just so cool, the presentation, right? And you can just stuff it with more butter, I feel. So, yeah, it's, there's definitely been a learning curve. But, uh, you know, that's something that never comes off the menu. You know, the people always expect them. You know, they always add on escargot. And to me, it's like the snail is not the best part. It's just the butter, the foamy butter, right, with the bread. That's really what you're ordering it for so i don't know the snails are pretty delicious they're, they're poached in like a corbouillon too so but it's like they're good because of the butter you know you know you guys are open with miro for a little bit 
Then you open Papa Kurt's that November, which is uh, a noodle shop kind of, but you guys also serve burgers. Like how did that idea, was that strictly born out of doing the bento boxes and stuff during the pandemic or? Kind of, um, you know, I was having lunch with a friend and, you know, that kind of food, we do local style burgers, we do Simon, we do one ton min, that kind of, that, though, that's food is very strictly a very Hawaii thing. You know, that combination. Uh, Simon is not ramen. It's not like shrimp, right? It's like a shrimp. Shrimp, shrimp dashi based. Yeah. You know, it's basically, it's a dying kind of food here. You know, there's a few mom and pops who still do it, who are amazing. Uh, and that's really the food I love to eat. And, you know, it's named after Kurt Hirabara, who used to grow the cabbage for me. Uh, we we use here of our farms. He he was a legendary farmer, legendary farmer. You know, he was a, a farmer where he picks who he wants to sell to. You know, he doesn't just sell to, if you ask him, he doesn't sell to you because it's, you know, their, their farm is very small. And when I started Vintage Cave, um, our general manager knew him from the Big Island. And the first trip I took was out to Hirabara Farm years and years ago. And I basically begged him I said, can you please sell to me? He used to sell to like Mavro, you know, only the best people. He's like, why should I sell to you, you know? And we had, we had a talk on the farm and it was like a Murad thing. We talked the whole day and we just hit it off. He was absolutely a father figure to me. Uh, absolutely one of my closest confidants. I used to talk to him every Monday for an hour or two and we just talk about life. And uh, I really, really missed him. He was a huge, huge part of my life. He was he was there for my first job in Vintage Game. And we talked every week. I just, I love him so much. I miss him. He was close to a lot of chefs, but... But you had like a bond that went past food. 100%. Yeah, just, he always told me that he, I was his favorite, you know? You know, I was talking to him on a Monday. By Thursday, he was in a coma. A rare, I think, stomach cancer. I mean, it was just devastating. To this day, it's just still devastated. I'm a very private person. I don't share my feelings with anybody. And he's like the only person who I could share anything with. Always gave me advice. Always told me to never take myself too seriously. That you're just a cook. You're just a father. And the best thing about you is that you're a father. No one gives a shit about that you're a cook. I miss him so much. Papa Kurtz is, is, is for him. And it's something that I'll always have. No matter, as long as I cook, I'll always have Papa Kurtz. It just, it means way more than, than a business. It's not a business. I don't, I don't, I don't care how much money he makes. It, it doesn't matter. I was just, I was so close to him. And I, every, every day I still wish I could talk to him. You know, it's, it's just, it's, devast, it's just devastating. I went up to his house when he was, uh, in a coma with another one of my closest friends, Gooch, just to see him, you know, lifeless. This is devastating. And, you know, we left his house and two hours later, he passed away. I think he was just waiting for us. But I, 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 I really wish I still had him around. Just devastating. I just didn't smoke. He didn't drink. I, he was so healthy, you know, but it just doesn't make any sense. But Papa Kurtz, you know, it's for it's food for everybody. It's food that I'm, I'm super proud of. Again, like I said, it, it, it's going to be around for as long as I'm alive because it's just it's for him. Kurt never cared about how successful I was. 
He just made sure that, you know, I was being a good father. He just he didn't care. I always try not to talk about him because it just, it just, I think about it all the time. You know, I think about it every week, and every, every Monday, especially, you know, I, I think about, you know, we would have been talking, you know, and it's just. Cause you would have gone up to the, the farm and everything on those days. You know, he's on the big Island. We just talk by phone. We always do my ordering on Monday and I was just, because we get deliveries on Tuesday, and it's it's great because his brother still delivers our, our stuff here, you know. And, and I know they're so happy that you know there's a Papa Kurtz, you know. Uh, I even got a tattoo of his face, you know. So it's I, I love the family, you know. It's a it's a great family. Auntie Pam, she you know she moved to Hilo, uh, but you know it's just there's people who come into your life and they just have an immediate impact, you know, uh, and a very lasting impact. And you know it's just we still get most of our stuff from here bar farm, but you know, it's just, I don't, I don't, I try not to get the cabbage for them anymore just because it's just so synonymous with our relationship. When I, when I, when I went up to the farm to big him, I asked him grow stuff, especially for me. And he was like, why should I do that? You know, they have like an acre and a half plot, which is very, very small. And their main thing is lettuce, which makes them the money. Right. It got to the point where I had my own little plot, you know, where he would do stuff just for me. And I was the only one, you know, and uh, so it's, it's hard to see. It just brings back a lot of memories when, when we get the cabbage or, you know, when we get the carrot. It's just, it's very emotional. It's very personal for me, you know. I don't think a lot of people understand the relationship that we had. A few months after Papa Kurtz, I think you wind up taking over How Tree in Lanai. After the hotel kind of rebranded, you know, the uh, Kaimana Beach Hotel, they want to go under new ownership and and you kind of get involved with the restaurant there and the menu. What kind of was the appeal with that opportunity when it came up for you? So, you know, me and Murad, you know, we 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 parted together and, and felt that it was a good opportunity. An extremely iconic uh, location. You know, it's a... Uh, Kamara Beach is a beach that all locals go to. You know, we, we, we growing up, we, we always barbecue at Kamara Beach, you know, and it's 10 minutes from my house. It was a good opportunity. You know, we designed the menu, trained, and, you know, we turned our attention to the projects that we own, you know, because at that point, it's like traveling, him traveling to Hawaii so often was hard, you know, because his restaurants, you know, feel it, right? Or Miro feels it when, when, you know, there's no attention, right? So, you know, we, we felt that let's concentrate on places that we're clearly invested in, you know? So, you know, we, we, we opened uh, a restaurant in Maui together uh, called like Coco. And, you know, that has been a new challenge because, you know, the restaurant is bigger than all my restaurants combined, uh, which is difficult. Only because, you know, it's like everyone's going through staffing, right? But trying to staff a big restaurant is harder than trying to staff a small restaurant, right? So it's been a challenge, you know? And uh, obviously tourism, up and down, you know, we're I think we're finally trying to find our footing now because uh, it took us a year to get our liquor license there, which is crazy. Was that just because everybody was shut down because of COVID, so they weren't processing? It's a Maui thing. Island time? Whatever it is, is brutal. So literally, we got our liquor license in January. What is it right now? April. We got it like three months ago only. The restaurant's been open like about a year and a half. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? 
So would people have to go get drinks at like the hotel bar or something? Or They set up a satellite bar. <laughs> Don't get me started, but it, it's just, it's, yeah, it was literally like a satellite bar with like six selections of wine, no cocktails and beer. That's it. So literally it took us over a year to get out there. Crazy process. Just not, when I say crazy process, it's just, it's a process that will never make sense to me. If that restaurant wasn't in a hotel, chances are it wouldn't have, wouldn't make it. Let, let me tell you, we're, we're an independent restaurant in a hotel, which means we have to pay all the bills. Like it's a restaurant, you know, it's not like a hotel funded thing. I guess my point being like, if you open like a standalone restaurant and told the public like, Hey, we're not going to have any sort of alcohol for a year. And like, you're trying to pay all your bills and everything like that's, I mean, that's like a death blow in itself for most restaurants. And luckily, like, because you're in the hotel, like you maybe get a, enough foot traffic to compensate for the loss to at least make it the year that you guys had to before the, the license comes through. So, you know, it's, it's, but it was also too, you know, there, it was a, during the pandemic, right? So they were telling people not to travel to Hawaii, right? So, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it's been, it's been a hell of a year, you know, uh, with people, you know, not coming and all of a sudden so many people coming, you know, and you're trying to find staff, you know, notoriously the Outer Island is a lot harder with staffing. Um, I don't know why, maybe because more people are transient, the workers in the hospitality, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, it's been exponentially harder to find people in Maui. We started working on our trip out there last year, like months in advance. I mean, I was watching like the local Hawaii news on YouTube, like figuring out like, all right, they said that they were going to open like inner island travel. Like, so that means we should be okay if we just go to one island. Like what all do, you know, are they going to do the, you know, they were talking about doing like a vaccine passport thing. And it's like, you had to get a COVID test. It's like, all right, I've got to find the link for the COVID test. And it, it actually was not hard. I mean, it it was, Hey, these are our preferred providers, like go through them, upload it. The biggest challenge was like our flight getting delayed on the way there and having to scramble to like, connect through a different airport to get to San Francisco within this time frame. So like our COVID test didn't expire. That was kind of the biggest challenge, but with kind of Hawaii being such a tourist, you know, heavy economy, are restaurants in hotels or restaurants like partnered with hotels viewed differently than they are here in the States where in the States, I feel like if you open a restaurant in a hotel and it's not a super high end hotel, I think people still kind of look down on it a little even though they probably shouldn't i think it's you know originally you know we didn't we didn't design the restaurant this was this was slated for another chef uh, actually from the mainland so you know we really walked into this very late so we didn't design it uh you know we didn't spec it uh but we saw an opportunity uh, because because of the pandemic you know uh they wanted to go in a different direction so this is we, where we came in and and it was difficult in the beginning because, you know, I was having to take a test every time I went there, right? And I was going there a lot. Uh, and then there was, you know, just all the, you know, there at one point, just getting a rental car was like 500 bucks a day cause just because there was no cars, right? They, they shipped up all the cars during the pandemic. So it was just, it's been crazy. Uh, you know, so, it, you know, we just, they just lifted the mask mandate uh, here. So it feels like it's getting normal now. So I'm hoping that, you know, we better clear skies ahead. 
In a recent interview, you talked about people should really probably work like one or two years in the kitchen. And we were kind of talking about staffing too, as well. You were saying like it takes at least one year, maybe two for somebody to get comfortable in a kitchen. With all kind of the staffing challenges that are out there, do you think there's going to be kind of a, a shift on the restaurant owner side where you can't do that anymore just because everybody's like trying to grab as much talent as they can? I think you hit it. You hit it right. I think everything has changed, right? The expectation a cook staying for two to three years is gone. You know, I think you're lucky if you get the year now, you know, and, and that's, that's what we've seen. I think even the past five years, you know, um, every, everyone, you know, they, they feel like they figured it out, you know, and, you know, really I, I myself couldn't figure anything out with, within, you know, eight months or a year. Right. Um, but to me, if, if you're not having an impact, a direct impact on, on, the restaurant, as in, you know, a sushi, chef, a sushi chef creating dishes, or you know, streamlining a process. Then I don't think you're ready, you know, to leave. You know, if you you haven't worked all the stations, um, you know, before, like you would get blocked on get on working the next station because the guy won't leave. You know, uh, you know, I remember working, getting a job in the dining room uh, at the Ritz-Carlton with Ron Siegel. There was a waiting list. You know, before, like, it was not one of these things where you come in and you get it. Like, there was a waiting list and you needed to start from the bottom. And you were on a station for like eight to eight months to a year sometimes, right? Because the guy above you is not leaving. So think about how much it's changed now, right? Like, now, like, every month, people are whizzing through stations and then they're leaving after eight months, right? But, my God, I was... I think at the Ritz-Carlton, I was on garbage for probably first year just because no one moved, you know? And there's only so many stations. So, you know, I did that for a year. And, you know, you go through many menu cycles. You, you, you figure out so many different techniques. That's valuable, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's different, it's different now. I mean, I'll be, I'll be happy if I get a year, you know? I'll be happy if I get eight months, maybe. <laughs> With the ingredients for your restaurants that you guys source, how much, you know, how much are you guys able to get locally since a lot of the farms in Hawaii are, are smaller farms, like you mentioned. So is it always kind of a challenge figuring out what you can get locally versus what port you might have to like import from California or even possibly Japan for certain ingredients? It's hard because we're a prefix restaurant and we run the same menu monthly, right? So, you know, we we're we're sometimes limited on what ingredients we pick to see if they can supply us for the whole month, right? So, you know, we did a carrot dish last last month and they come from here our farms. If we go through a spell where we're even busier than expected, then that affects the quantity, right? It affects the next, like, next month. So it definitely plays into it. It's hard. You know, a lot of these farms don't, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lack of land space here, right? So, you know, here bar is only like an acre and a half, I believe. So that's not big for for a farm. That's small. It's tiny, right? So there's only so much they can produce. There's a great fish, and it's farmed. It's Kona Kampachi. And last month we were running it, and we had to switch to uh, a, we had to switch to Hamachi for a bit because even though it's farmed and it's from here, they didn't have enough supply, you know, uh, for the demand. So it definitely gets tricky. Uh, but you know, Trevor, our chef de cuisine comes from that 
uh, farmer's market mindset. So he always goes out and we, we substitute sometimes. I mean, I'm not super rigid on it has to be this, it has to be that. It just has to taste good. Uh, I think that's more what we're after. Roy Yamaguchi, Alan Wong, George Mavro, those are kind of the three chefs that your generation looked up to in, in Hawaii. Kind of everybody looked towards them for a path to follow, kind of paving the way. Aside from yourself, who else kind of in your class is kind of helping pave the way for the next generation? I think Sheldon represents uh, Tin Roof now, food for the people, but it's delicious, right? And that is a representation of food here, multicultural. I think Andrew Lay, being a lady, there's no other restaurant like it. We came up cooking together for sure. You know, he's a Marlboro alum. You know, I I always enjoy what he does traditionally and non-traditionally. Ed Kenny, you know, he's my neighbor at Miro. Uh, See him almost every day. He kind of spearheaded bringing back that whole mindset of use what's here. You know, you know those are those are three people who, at the top of my head, who I, I look through, I, I look to with what they're doing because also too they're all business owners, right? They're independent restaurant owners, which is very difficult. You know, me and Ed literally we're 20 feet from each other. I just have to cross the street, right? I remember he told me a few years ago. He's like and. You know, he's like, don't open so many restaurants. You know, he told me that. And, and I, the, you know, the young me was like, no, I'm going to do it, you know? But it's like, he's right. It's quality over quantity. You know, you have to, you have to really believe, you should really believe in each restaurant that you open, you know, that it should, it should feel good, you know? And uh, he's right. And that, that's kind of the mindset going forward. I'm only going to open something that I completely 100% believe in, you know, because over the last three, four years, we've been offered a lot of things. But, um, you know, I opened the burger place. I never thought I would open a burger place. But, you know, we had it for staff meal a few days ago. It's good. You know, it's, I, I, I want to eat it more often. But obviously, it's, you know, I, I don't want to look like how I look like now. So uh, I can't eat too many burgers, you know. So I asked this to Taylor Ponty, who came on the podcast last year. In your mind, what makes someone Hawaiian? Because you're fourth generation Japanese, but you're born and raised in Hawaii. To me, that makes you Hawaiian. But to some people, it's all about heritage and ethnicity. Do you see it that way, or that's a tough question? You know, um, you know, I was talking to Diego yesterday. Uh, he's third generation, I believe, Peru, born in Peru, but of Japanese descent, right? So it's it's the same thing. You know, it's my parents don't speak any Japanese, right? They are, they consider themselves just from Hawaii, right? Local, we call it local. Um, you know, I consider myself from Hawaii local. Does, does that mean Hawaiian? Uh, not necessarily, but I consider myself a local. Born and raised here, been here. My grandparents were born here, Amawi. Um, I'm pretty far removed from Japan, right? So. I would say I have pretty deep roots here then, right? So I wouldn't say I'm Hawaiian, but I I think I live life and with respect to other cultures, uh, you know, having a sense of place. And, you know, I think we definitely have a sense of hospitality that's different here. You know, whenever a chef comes in, you know, I make sure that they have the best time, you know, uh, just that they're, they're cared for. I just drop... Diego off at the airport. They went to Maui for a couple of days, and 
And I made sure I grabbed him sandwich speeds for the plane, for his kid, for his wife. You know, it's just like things like that. You know, that's what, that's what we do as locals. You know, we just make sure that people are overfed, right? Never, never hungry. That's, that's, that's our sense of hospitality here. Your first love was baseball. Grew up playing it. Who's your team? Who do you follow? Ooh, you know, it's funny because uh, growing up in Hawaii, TBS was a huge thing here. It's like, uh, so the Braves were always on. Uh, turn of broadcast. Um, so I, I grew up loving the Braves, um, like Sid Breen, David Justice, Greg Maddox. Uh, but my parent, my dad, and my brother are diehard Yankees fans. So, like, my, my dad loves Mickey Mantle, you know. Um, so I follow the Yankees. And I, obviously, I've, I've lived in New York. Um, you know, I love baseball, but I also love the Giants. I lived in San Francisco for so long. You know, I've been to more Giants games than anything. Uh, I love Buster Posey. Um, but I would say, you know, those two teams, but also I think what Shohei Otani is doing right now is pretty crazy. You know, he's just, he's just, he doesn't look like a Japanese guy, right? He's just so tall and built and he's just like the next generation. He just can do everything, you know? So I've never seen him play in person, but I definitely want to. San Francisco casts a pretty wide shadow on the West Coast food scene. Do you think Hawaii can eventually be viewed as a peer to it or, or kind of on the same level, you know, since you guys have some advantages with having a, a year round grow scene and, and stuff like that, or is it just kind of too small, too far removed? Not that, you know, you're trying to subplant San Francisco as the, the West coast premier food scene or anything like that, but. I would say, you know, maybe people will give me shit for this, but on the high end, I don't think we're ever going to supplant San Francisco. Right? They have so many high-end restaurants. But if you want to go, you know, punch for punch for just delicious food, I think we're already there. You know, I think where in San Francisco can you find a really good musubi? Not that many places. Where can you find it here? Everywhere. You know, where can you find a great poke bowl? A lot of places here. You know, where can you find great Hawaiian food? Where can you find, you know, Vietnamese, what Andrew's doing? I don't think, I mean... I think we're just as good as San Francisco in every other aspect, to be honest with you. And, and this is somebody who I, I live and breathe San Francisco. I lived there for off and on for seven years. You know, I thought I was going to live there forever. But, you know, it's it's a it's a different city now, much different than when I first moved there. Um, on the high end, I don't think people are trying to do that kind of food here. But on the just where would I want to eat delicious food? I think we're already there. I think there's a lot of delicious food here. It just it's not necessarily the fanciest place, you know, but it's, I mean, you know, I, I eat well here, you know, so. You've kind of become this like, almost like restaurant restoration kind of rehab guy. Like you're reviving these concepts that were kind of headed towards closing with, you know, Miro Cafe and, and Papa Kurtz to an extent too as well. And then you take over, you know, the hotel restaurant that somebody dropped out of. Is that something that you kind of feel like a responsibility to do outside of just it being good business or making business sense? I don't look at it towards like, you know, revitalizing something. Uh, I take it on, you know, Miro was, Miro is one of one, right? It's, it's, it's a legacy uh, that uh, I really was interested in, in keeping uh, going. One, because it's a neighborhood I grew up in. It's a neighborhood, it's on Ninth Avenue. My parents still live on Ninth Avenue, but on the other side. So literally, <laughs> Like, as a kid, this space used to be broken up into two spots. It used to be a restaurant and a bakery. It was called Ninth Avenue Bakery. 
I used to, my mom used to take me there every day for breakfast before school to grab a sandwich and a pastry. So like to operate a restaurant in a place where I used to go as a kid, like that's pretty cool, you know? And that's why, you know, I love spending time here, you know? And Papa uh, Kurtz is something, it's more, not a, not a revitalization. It's, it's keeping on something that I hope will never die. You know, it's that the local food culture. Um, hotel restaurant it's just it's a very singular opportunity um but these ones are you know i i kept the name miro because i respected what he did for 22 years and i want that to last hopefully for another 22 years and then i can retire pineapple on pizza are you for it or are you against it Uh, i'm not into it Uh, i mean i'm i don't i don't shy away from anything but i i don't you know why because it i like pineapple when it's cold when it's hot it's so weird how has the restaurant and food scene in Hawaii changed since you've been involved in it? And kind of where do you see it headed? It's changed because, you know, there's a, a much more, the talk is much more about sustainability, especially the pandemic. You know, the people were scared that the boats weren't coming in anymore. You know, uh, we get, we still get so much stuff shipped in here. You know, that's the talk I had, you know, with my manager about, you know, can we get to the point where we're not doing any meat, you know, where we're just doing seafood and vegetables? Uh, that's where I would like to head. What do I see? I, I see I, every year I think our food scene gets better. It gets more diverse. So I can only imagine in, in 10 years, hopefully I still have our, my restaurants, but I, I'll speak to Miro. The longer we've been open, the better we're getting. So this this restaurant won't, won't hit its mark, you know, until another few years where I feel... Okay, we figured some things out. You know, we're dialing it in, and you know, we're we're better. So maybe the next time we eat here, we won't have any meat. You know, I would love to head that way. What's kind of next for you professionally? You you got the few restaurants. I think there's a rumor out there that maybe something happens in Tokyo because you go there a lot. Tokyo, Japan as a whole, you know, has my heart. You know, and that's me going to Tokyo when I was an adult, you know, with my parents really not caring to go, you know, um, but the way I feel when I'm there, it, I, it's someplace that I would love to retire to, where I love to live, live there. And, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to, to go to some of the best places to eat there. And it, it's been my dream to open something there, um, to cook in that culture uh, amongst you know, the amazing chefs, um, that is, I'll say, you know, it's on the bucket list, but it, I think it could happen, you know, maybe soon, um, whether it be in Kyoto or I'm not sure between Kyoto and Tokyo, uh, but it's something that I have my eye on um, because that would, that would be, I would love to live there half the year if I could and, and cook there and do something very small. Uh, and as well as, like, you know, our clientele, we have so many great Japanese guests, you know, and uh, a lot of them have encouraged me to open there. Um, and it's just, it's my happy place, you know. It's, it's, it's like, you can, go to, you can go to a convenience store, you can go to Lawson's and eat a great meal. I would say great meal for under like $5, you know. And it's like, get an iced coffee, a sandwich, fried chicken, or a musubi or a pastry, like at a convenience store, and it's just as good as 
a, a brick and mortar restaurant, you know? It's like, yeah, it's just like, I, whenever I go to Japan, I just eat too much, you know? And I don't drink, I don't really drink. So it's just like eating, 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 eating. It's crazy. This question comes from Dan Varga, the chef and butcher here in Columbus. He owns the Hungarian Butcher. He's a previous guest on the podcast. Left behind a question for you. What are you doing to help train and pass down the culinary heritage and culinary culture that you have to the next generation of chefs? That's a great question. Perfect example is, is Trevor, who's my CDC, you know, was with me when I had my first job at Vintage Group, right? And I remember he came in as uh, not with not a lot of experience, definitely not high-end experience. And I remember to this day, uh, me teaching him how to do his first torchon, right? Cleaning the lobes, rolling it, poaching it, tying it, hanging it, waiting a couple of weeks and then cutting it open, right? To see. And I still remember, I still have a picture, you know, and the amount of pride I have to see that he's now running my restaurant as a CDC and working with the menu with me and seeing how far. So now Trevor has a kid, right? When I was there, I had my kid. Now he has his kid. So it's like, it feels like it's all come full circle, you know? Uh, Trevor is, is uh, you know, he's going to open a restaurant with his wife and I can only imagine how good it's going to be, you know? And to me, like you said, you know, no longer do you chase the awards, you chase the legacy, you know? And that's what means the most to me is that, you know, I have people like Trevor. Uh, I have people like Jeff Hayashi, who's going to do the Boku's Door. I mean, Jeff, Jeff's going to do the Boku's Door. He's representing the United States, right? And he came in as a very inexperienced cook at Vintage Cave years ago with no confidence. And now he's going to represent the United States in the biggest cooking competition in the world, right? Like, that's my legacy. That's part of my legacy, you know? And, like, what's better than that, you know? And, uh, you know, obviously the, the, you can't be as hard on this generation, you know? Uh, I mean, I was, I was called a piece of shit a lot when I was coming up cooking, you know, but I don't think you can do that anymore. Uh, but, you know, I, I still, you know, I see Trevor passing on things that I pass on to him. And it's, it's funny because, you know, during service, I'm, I, I'm asking for something and I, I'm not very eloquent, right? We're cooks. We, we don't know how to communicate, but he just understands exactly what I'm trying to convey, even though I'm not conveying it correctly, if that makes sense, you know? So it's just funny. He's just been around. He knows what I want, you know? And, uh, you know, he, he's going to be leaving uh, soon to Portland. And, you know, I have to train Uzar Susha to be able to take over now. You know, that's that's my job is to make sure that uh, Steven, who comes from New York, who's our sous chef now, is going to be able to confidently, you know, run this place day to day, you know? And, uh, but that, that's the best thing. It's about evolution. The restaurant's going to evolve every two years, you know? So it's a good thing. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. What restaurant inspires you the most in culture, in cuisine, in, yeah, everything, the whole package. This question comes from one of our listeners. They wanted to know, how do you keep cooking in your kitchens fun? I think what they mean by this is kind of, how do you not let it become too routine, too day in, day out, same thing over and over again? Which, which is hard, right? That's part of the grind. You know, I, I worked in kitchens, every kitchen I worked at, you know, 
It was very quiet, right? No one talked. Definitely no music. You know, as as an owner, you know, do I want to come into work and be part of that environment where, you know, everything is, there's so much tension, right? Like, no one wants that. Because I, I don't want to come into that, right? So we have a lot of fun here. That's why I love coming here because it, my cooks are so young that I learned so many new things, you know? I, and it has nothing to do about culinary. It's like terms or phrases that they use now or, um, you know, they were talk, they're, last night we were talking about these dating apps that they're on. It's just, you know, it's fun. It's funny. And, it, you know, one of my cooks last night turned 21. And it's like, God, I remember when I was that age, you know? Um, but, you know, we listen to music. We sing. You know, there's a lot of banter. Because um, all my cooks, they went to culinary school together, like in the same class. So, they, yeah, they've been together for a while. Uh, they've been here since the beginning. Um, so you can imagine there's a lot of shit talking, right? They make fun of each other a lot. Uh, it, it's just fun. I, I just, me and Trevor, we're constantly laughing uh, at these kids because, you know, it's a new generation, you know? And uh, they they keep me young, you know? And I, they keep me updated on, on what's going on, I guess. I mean, they, a lot of the times they talk about golf or MMA. You know, it's like, Whenever there's a UFC fight, these kids are like itching to look at their phone to see who won. You know, it's crazy. The last set of questions here, we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. Nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Two people, uh, Ron Siegel and my auntie Betty, who uh, she's passed away, but she was like, she was always cooking, you know, at her family gatherings. I always used to, to watch her, help her in the kitchen. So she was, a, she was a big one, Auntie Betty. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? God, I think a Vitamix gets used and abused, right? In every kitchen. So I think, I think or, uh, you know, people are going to slam me for saying this, but like having a, a rationale, it's like amazing, right? I love a rationale, a combi oven. I love it. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? The scenario I give is, you know, person got stuck at the airport, stuck overnight, reach out to you. You guys are closed. Hey, where should we go eat? Uh, there's a restaurant called Open for Breakfast and Lunch called Ethel's. That is like everyday food. Amazing. It's like you eat there, but you, you're not doing much after. You know, you're, you're just sit on the couch and <laughs> watch TV. I also think I eat, I eat uh, Japanese food a lot. Izakayas. There's a great, there's a, so many great izakayas here. Uh, one called Gaku that I love. Uh, I go there pretty pretty often. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to that you want to visit, and then place you haven't eaten at, but you want to eat at someday. I would say I've never been to Paris. Robuchon to me is God. Uh, I love Robuchon. But I think Echabari in Spain, I can only imagine. It just I can just tell how good it is, you know? It just looks so simple, but... Uh, I think that's definitely, but, you know, I, I've been going to Japan so much over the past four or five years that it's hard for me not to go back to Japan every time. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I, I think the craziest thing is probably just vomit at the table. Oh, no, actually, I have a good one. Uh, there's a candle with candles and it was like on like a kind of a service station and there's a booth right next to it uh one of the diners hair caught on fire and she had no idea <laughs> but uh the 
her boyfriend next to her was like, holy shit, and trying to tap it out. And, uh, you know, she finally got it out. But she was such a good sport about it. She just carried on. Like, her like hair didn't catch on fire. I think she was, she was, she had a few cocktails for sure. I've never seen something light so fast. Just like, Maybe it was extension that she wasn't worried. She could get it, like, swapped out. It was, it wasn't natural. I mean, the way it lit, it was, it was like instant. Yeah. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know is terrible for you, but you can't help yourself. Fast food, candy, anything like that. I try not to do it. Uh, Cause you know, it's like when chefs get out of work, it's the only thing that's open. Right. But I love French fries and I love ice cream and I love them together. So like the, you know, the, the McDonald's, one dollar ice cream cone with fries like for that price there's not much more pleasurable things together you know i love i love uh but like in our kitchen they we eat so much gummy candy like sour gummy candy like every day so bad favorite instagram account you follow it's hard that's impossible it doesn't even have to be a restaurant either i mean just but one that you just, when you see it, you always kind of go like, oh yeah, like you, like you enjoy it. It's probably cliche, but I really love following uh, Renee from Noma. It, you know, it, I've, I've known a lot of people who work there. It just looks, it just looks like he's having fun. It looks like, uh, you know, I know how tedious and what they do, you know, but one of my servers who's from Sweden just went, went to Noma for, for lunch over the holidays. And, you know, the, it, the, the sense of hospitality there, he said, is just next level. That 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 only that comes from the top, I'm sure, you know. So that only if if your leader believes in that, then your staff will be like that. So and I like I like to see what they're up to, even though my food is nowhere nowhere near what they do. So it's so different. You know what? I have one more. I like Mark Mark Weens. Have you ever seen him? My I think he's migrationology. He's like a eater who eats all over the planet but uh he's super famous but just like him eating food like his face is just like he's having like a like an orgasm everything he eats it's like the funniest thing it's like it could be like a like a french fry and it's like the best thing he's ever done in his life you know i I like i like to watch him his 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 page is pretty funny favorite dish thing you ever cooked created like Looking back on your career, you can kind of point to this dish as almost like your aha moment where you knew you could be a professional chef. I think the cabbage dish at Vintage Cave, I was really happy with. It was a charred charred um, cone cabbage. I basically took dehydrated kombu. I did a dice of that, uh, dill, uh, and I covered the cabbage, charred cabbage with that. I served it with a, a miso creme fraiche. I, made, I took Korean dried anchovies and made a dashi uh, with a little ginger. So it's charred cabbage with the kombu, dill, uh, miso creme fraiche, and anchovy dashi. I thought, I still think it's probably one of the best things I've ever made. And it was garnished with a cabbage chip. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there another culinary personality, whether it's Emerald or Bobby Flay or, or just anybody who was on TV that you kind of gravitated towards? Huge Bourdain fan. I remember the first time he went to the French Laundry. It was with Eric Repair. It was a, you know, legendary episode. But, you know, looking, you know, I still watch his old, like, Parts Unknown, his, his newer stuff. 
he's such a great storyteller, you know? And at the end, it wasn't even about food. It was about social issues, economic issues, just injustice. But it, he was such a great storyteller. And I think that's why he was so... I think people revered him because he, he stretched much beyond, you know, the beginning episodes was just about food, right? How good food was. And at the end, it was just about where the food came from, why the food's like that. You know, it was just, it was a, it was a story. So I, I watch his newer stuff because I, I think it's, he was such a great storyteller. Where can people find you? Social media, websites, reservations, plug all that stuff. I just changed my Instagram handle back to my original one, which I started, which was it's CK Cuisine 21. Uh, so that's my Instagram. Nero Kamiki, uh, Papa Kurtz, uh, White Coco Maui. I don't, I don't run those accounts, so don't, don't DM them or anything. Um, I just CK Cuisine 21. You know, I, I answer a lot of people their messages. You guys are open uh, at Miro what Tuesday through Sunday, Tuesday through Saturday. Wednesday through Sunday. Hobbikurtz is also Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, White Coco is every day. Hopefully there'll be Japan, maybe something, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I can't recommend it enough. Anybody finds themselves headed to Honolulu. The food's awesome. I mean, Honolulu has a really cool food scene. It's a little bit harder to find. You can find places on Maui, but some of the other islands, it's a little bit more spread out. So you kind of have to plan accordingly, but Honolulu is pretty dense. So you can kind of line stuff up a little bit easier, but Miro is awesome. Awesome experience. So hopefully we'll be back in a, a year or so, hopefully, give or take. I don't know. We'll see. Like I said, awesome restaurant. Awesome to see you guys having success still after COVID and everything too. And just different dinners that you guys are doing. And like I said, I, I can't recommend it enough and I really appreciate you coming on. And like I said, hopefully we, we see you soon. Thanks for having me, brother. A big thanks again to Chef Chris Kajoyka for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off to come on and chat about his career and his different restaurants and what it means to be a chef in Hawaii and be a Hawaiian chef and working with Hawaiian ingredients and and all that stuff. I think it's a really fascinating conversation, so it was really awesome to have him on. If you've never been to Hawaii, I mean, obviously a lot of people aspire to get there at some point. Honolulu has a great restaurant scene. I couldn't recommend Miro Kamuki enough. We had a phenomenal meal there. His old restaurant, Senia, has a great tasting menu option there too. And they also do an a la carte thing. And there's a bunch of different great sushi spots too as well across Honolulu. There are great restaurants on Maui too. You're kind of on the different ends of the island. Um, but there's a lot of different interesting stuff going on. You know, we had Chef Taylor Ponty on last year. He does kind of a in-home catering, kind of private catering operation. So that's an option too. There's a few chefs that do that around the islands and, and stuff like that. So if you've never been to Honolulu, I would definitely recommend getting there. Um, it's definitely the most approachable, kind of easiest to get to of the islands. You can stay right in the city and kind of walk to most things or take the bus or stuff like that. So Again, you can follow him on Instagram at Chef Chris Kajoyka, at Miro Kaimuki, at Papa Kurtz, and at Maui. All those accounts on Instagram. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Spoon Mob One. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Follow us, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And that's it for this week. Appreciate everybody listening. Feel free to write in any questions, comments, emails, either spoonmob at yahoo.com or go to the website and use the contact portal. Appreciate those that have been writing in, but appreciate everybody listening. And we got more great episodes on the way. So 
Until next Thursday, we'll talk to you guys then.